Uh, I did know of Jonathan's work before he came on the podcast because he and I share a football team. Well, I presume we share a football team. Yeah, I'm a, a Sunderland fan very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I know this is not a great start for you, Andy. I know talking about football is not something you, you issue understand. A, a, an apology on behalf of that listed in a minute, but do, do carry on, gentlemen. Well, I believe that it's possible to write deeply intelligent stuff about sport, and Jonathan does that. What I haven't seen is the Netflix series, Sunderland Till I Die, which everybody in my family tells me I have to watch and that it's marvellous and heartwarming and brilliantly done. Yeah, and it really would... is. It's um, it's made with a lot of love for the city. And I think a sense, if you haven't grown up in the city, maybe you don't realise that because Sunderland was such a big and important shipbuilding port and those shipyards have gone, yeah. the sense of loss that still hangs over the place. And you don't even, I mean, I, I was born in 1976. There's no shipyards there to speak of when I was growing up. And yet the sense of something missing, the sense of the town is not as important as it used to be hangs over it it hangs over the football as well and so that that, that sense of, of of nostalgia for past you never were really aware of i think characterizes everything i'd love going back there even though it does have exactly that feeling it's one of the rare places in the uk where it really is it not i mean it's such a cliche to say it's a religion but they're still getting thirty-five thousand plus fans for what is essentially now they're playing in the third division. Rach, has John ever taken you to a Sunderland game? I have never been to a Sunderland You've game. You've never expressed an interest? No, it's true. That glorious <laughs> prospect is always there. The stadium <laughs> of light is still there, Rachel. <laughs> anyway, it's a rather odd way to start off a discussion on the writer that we're going to be discussing today. But he did box at school, Bruce Chatwin. And captain the school rugby team. I didn't know that. Despite I, claiming to have hated games at school, he was. I think, I, think I think we all Jonathan. hated games at school, didn't we? I mean, oh. didn't we? Yeah, I did. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan disproves my long-held theory that it was impossible for a man to like both football and Bruce Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> so so, we're, I bet so we'll grill this, him on that, that in a minute. I bet that Venn diagram is forming even as we speak across the country. So, well, hang on. on the chat uh, people will let me know, John. Don't worry. I think we should start. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you join us in the mysterious middle European city of Prague in 1974 as we sit in a musty apartment, sparsely furnished except for the row upon row of mirrored shelves, each one crammed with antique porcelain. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, joining us today are Jonathan Wilson, a sports writer and author of 11 books. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Hello 11. Jonathan. 11 books. Uh, including Inverting the Pyramid, a history of football tactics that was named Football Book of the Year in 2009. His most recent book is The Barcelona Legacy. I believe this, I'm going to try and pronounce these listeners. Guardiola. Morinho and, <laughs> and, and the fight for football's soul published by blink in 2018 and which is appearing in paperback in april jonathan is also the editor of the blizzard a quarterly journal of football writing also joining us today just weeks after she was last here <laughs> after the lawrence shootout listeners demanded it so here she is she's back is Rachel Kerr, a publisher and editor who has worked for Jonathan Cape, Picador, Harville and Unbound. Rachel previously appeared on our episode about Haunts of the Black Masseur by Charles, Charles Brawson and a few weeks ago on the D.H. Lawrence episode about the rainbow. And Rachel, do you notice anything different about me since we recorded that D.H. <laughs> Lawrence considerably episode? considerably more slender, Andy. How, why, how, how nice of you to say. <laughs> I, I, there's a stone less of me than there was when we recorded that D.H. Lawrence irritable? episode. You, no, I'm more irritable. Oh, Have you noticed? No, no, not much. <laughs> yeah, I'm Online, more irritable because I'm not eating enough food. <laughs> you look good on it though, love. Oh, bless you. Rachel is also married to John Mitchinson for her sins. And why she's back with us so soon will shortly be revealed. So the book that Jonathan and Rachel are here to talk about is Utz, the last novel and penultimate book by Bruce Chatwin, first published in 1988 by Jonathan Cape. And I think one of the things that we should say immediately is how bizarre it is for those of us of a certain age to remember how famous and popular and best-selling and critically revered Bruce Chatwin was in the 1980s 
and how now we can sit around the table 30 years later. And I think we'll all agree that Chatwin is probably not nearly as widely read as he was. And he feels to me like he's fallen very much out of fashion, though that might change. There is a documentary coming later this year by his friend Werner Herzog about Chatwin. So there may be a a resurgence. I don't know. We've all got lots to say. I I know we have for a fact. So So let's get on with it. Sean, I'm going to ask you this time. What have you been reading this week? I have been reading a very short, very powerful book by the Mexican novelist Valeria Luiselli called Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions. She is a novelist who kind of came to prominence in 2012 with a book called Faces in the Crowd, a book about an unhappily unmarried mother of two children whose life is kind of falling about. The, the thing in the book, sort of experimental. She's trying to impose narrative order on her life, and she got a lot of reviews. She's become very quickly one of the poster girls for the kind of best writing coming out of Central Latin America. This is very different. She narrates in, in Tell Me How It Ends how she's applying for a green card to live and work in the U- US. It should be said that this book's written in English. I, as you know, I'm trying to read more books in translation, and I read Faces in the Crowd, but I also read this, and I was so impressed by this short book about child migrants crossing from Mexico into the US. It's just remarkable numbers of children Mm. unaccompanied children finding themselves turning up at the border and they all have to go through this quite sinister we've all been to america where you have to do that slightly comic you know moral turpitude have you ever been a communist you know there's those questions that you and you think when you of course say no to all of them unless you're my mother um have you been on a farm and I'm, oh, yes <laughs> but this the actual detention center when you're trying to uh, you're trying to cross the border there are 40 questions so the book is structured around each of these 40 questions and the the stories that the ch- that she gets the children to tell her that they tell her why do you want to come to america it's written before trump but the looming horror is there and it's as equally critical about what what Ineta, the mexican premier is doing to create the, the, the crisis as well so it's not just that america is is in the wrong for the kind of reportage kapuczynski like weirdly reminded me of that kind of that kind of writing that you found in in the grant the glory well, days of grantor yeah, of the night yeah, yeah. of the 1980s is this book john is this like pitched as journalism i think it's not really journalism not to be disrespectful to journalism what she's trying to do i mean there's a narrative which is her you know her movement to america but she's a novelist so she's what she's doing is trying to Im- imaginatively reconstruct the narratives of these children i mean she makes political points it's it's not a tub thumping polemic it's just quietly devastating in in the stories that she tells just the moral obscenity just thinking of herzog again you know it was herzog goes on record all the time as saying it's the extremities of the human condition that produces truth this is definitely one of those liminal points where everything is breaking down and of course you know it's it, it is this mythological notion that the way you respond to that is to build a, a wall it's like troy it's it, anyway it's just a little bit from towards the end of the book where she's she's just reflecting on it. I've had to ask so many children, why did you come? Sometimes I ask myself the same question. I don't have an answer yet. Before coming to the United States, I knew what others know, that the cruelty of its borders was only a thin crust, that on the other side, a possible life was waiting. I understood sometime after that, that once you stay here long enough, you begin to remember the place where you originally came from, the way a backyard might look from a high window in the deep of winter, a skeleton of the world, a tract of abandonment objects dead and obsolete and once you're here you're ready to give everything or almost everything to stay and play a part in the greater theater of belonging in the united states to stay is an end in itself and not a means to stay is the founding myth of this society to stay in the states you will unlearn the universal metric system so you can buy a pound and a half of cooked ham except that 32 degrees and not zero is where the line falls that divides cold from freezing You might even begin to celebrate the pilgrims who removed the alien Indians and the veterans who maybe killed other aliens and the day of a president who will eventually declare a war on all the other so-called aliens. No matter the cost, no matter the cost of the rent and milk and cigarettes, the humiliations, the daily battles, you will give everything 
you will convince yourself that it is only a matter of time before you can be yourself again in America, despite the added layers of its otherness already so well adhered to your skin. But perhaps you will never want to be your former self again. There are too many things that ground you to this new life. Why did you come here? I asked one little girl once. Because I wanted to arrive. And that is wow. kind of towards the end of the book. It's, it's Who's it published by? Fourth Estate. It was published last year. So, I kind okay. of was vaguely aware of it, but she's a really interesting writer and just sort of strangely felt in the key of Chatwin. Very good. Andy. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of in the key of Chatwin, what have you been reading? <laughs> okay, so I've actually cheated this week because it's. I haven't read this book this week. I read it a few weeks ago and then... When I insisted, John, that you invite Rachel back to talk about <laughs> Oops by Bruce Chatwin, that was a, um, a dodge. Because actually what I wanted to do is get Rachel in because I know this is one of her favourite books of all time. It's by Grand Central Station I Sat Down and Wept by Elizabeth Smart. Or as I like to think of it, by, by Grand Central Station I Sat Down and Wept. I Sat Down and Wept by Andy Miller. <laughs> it is one of the worst books I have ever read. And that is not an exaggeration. It is terrible. It is both unenjoyable and appallingly written. But nobody wants to hear me wang on about that because that is not what that listed is about. <laughs> and so, listeners, what I've done crushed, is Andy. I've got Rachel Kerr <laughs> in specifically to account for herself That's and Elizabeth really Smart. <laughs> it's not meant to be mean. I genuinely don't want to sit here slagging a book off. And I'm genuinely, what you said, because we had a chat about it, yeah. and you said this was such an important book for me. What did I miss? I think you're not a 19-year-old girl, Andy. That's clearly... <laughs> I tried so hard. <laughs> I mean, I was 19 when I first read this book, and it completely blew me away. It's one of those books that sort of enters your your soul and you sort of it's it's a novel in prose poetry about the affair between Elizabeth Smart and the poet George Barker mm. and she fell in love with him through the page by reading his poetry in a bookshop in Charing Cross Road she's Canadian he's British they they he went over to America they they were they got together they got arrested from um, trying to cross state lines because they were not married and um, she was carted away, and that's all in the book. Um, and so it's the sort of that that amazing sort of all for love type thing. Is the scene where she gets arrested is one of those scenes where mm. that will stay with you forever because she's being put into a car with a policeman and driven away from mm, her lover, mm. and she intersperses the poetic description of that with lines from the Song of Solomon. So it's sort of like the enormous and the really mundane all together and that's that's what she does all the way through that's what I loved about it yeah it's one of those books that sort of it just completely at the time was exactly what I loved the writer it reminded me of and this is a serious point I think I've probably said something about this writer on Backlisted before it really reminded me bizarrely of H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> the horror wow. writer no I'll tell you why H.P. Lovecraft couldn't write. Mm. He could not string together a pleasing sentence in mm. the bourgeois way. As a result of which, the stories, his writing is able to take you to places that other better writers cannot because he accesses mm. ways of seeing and ways of thinking that a more orthodox, educated, trained mind would mm. not be able to get to. And I felt with Elizabeth Smart that... There were real challenges to my um, <laughs> aesthetic sense. Yeah. But at the same time, I wouldn't... I'm, why I wanted you to tell people about it was I, I, I feel um, not... I, I feel it's inappropriate for me to, to judge the artistic intent harshly. I would not doubt the sincerity of what she was trying to no. do. I would just question her ability to do it, Right. But other people read the book and don't feel that way at all. Mm -hmm. It certainly seems to provoke a very strong no, it, reaction in people. It does. I think there is art in there. I mean, I, to me, it's very clever. It's very beautiful. Mm. So there, there are passages that just, you know... Sort of, and what I love... I mean, for instance, you, on this edition that you've got here, there's that quote from Angela Carter, which says, It's like Madame Bovary blasted by lightning. 
A masterpiece. <laughs> okay. Now, Angela Carter. <laughs> Angela Carter said she she wouldn't have wept. She said, no, no, by, yeah, by she, Grand Central Station, I'd have cut off his balls. balls yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but she said that's, she was talking about Virago, the, the setting up of, of yeah. Virago. And she said, she said, you know, uh, this, the, we need this because I don't want any daughter of mine to have to write a book like that. What yeah. you have to remember is this yeah, book yeah. was written in 1945. So, it's, so you, it's, can you read us the beginning of it? No, you're laughing. I'm not putting you on no, the spot. I am I'm putting no, but I th- I, no one wants to hear me read it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that. I think, I think we, we can, can all con- agree on that. We can all concur on that. The committee. <laughs> I would like her to have the, a fair hearing. I don't want to make fun. Okay. I'm standing on a corner in Monterey, waiting for the bus to come in, and all the muscles of my will are holding my terror to face the moment I most desire. Apprehension and the summer afternoon keep drying my lips, prepared at ten-minute intervals all through the five-hour wait. But then it is her eyes that come forward out of the vulgar disembarkers to reassure me that the bus has not disgorged disaster. Her Madonna eyes, soft as the newly born, trusting as the untempted. And for a moment, at that gaze, I am happy to forego my future and postpone indefinitely the miracle hanging fire. Her eyes shower me with their innocence and surprise. Was it for her, after all, for her whom I had never expected nor imagined that there would have been compounded such ruses of coincidence? I get what you're saying, Andy. Yeah, yeah, go on. (laughs) Behind her, he for whom I have waited so long, who has stalked so unbearably through my nightly dreams, fumbles with the tickets and the bags and shuffles up to the event which too much anticipation has fingered to shreds. You see what I see. I'm really glad we did this because, a, if you recorded the audiobook, I would happily listen to it. Right? <laughs> but also, I'm serious. It, it, how we approach a book is really important. You approach that in good faith, and your good faith it communicates itself when you're reading it. It sounded yeah. great. If I read that, I'd be bringing all my kind of. Remember that time you read? You, uh, you, that? you had a, that bad reaction to Elizabeth Byrne that time. I did have that bad reaction to yeah. Elizabeth Byrne. And I read that awful paragraph. Yeah, yeah. How can you not love that? He shuffles up to the event which too much anticipation has fingered to shreds. Yes, but equally, Rachel, Rachel, vulgar disembarkers is horrible, (laughs) right? I know, but, you know, she's looking at a bus of fat people getting, you know. (laughs) Anyway, so that's what. It's fine. That's what I was. But I mean, it is slightly not to want to rehearse. I don't think we're going to. Don't think we're going to have that problem with Chatwin, but it is yeah. slightly that the high style that you've disliked in in Lawrence, and that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who love Blake's lyrics, find it almost impossible to read his longer poems because it just it's just you know what, where, what are we now? It's just like well, I don't know who this character Thoth and you know Barlam and I just it's too confusing, and I always I I was thinking about the the Lawrence episode. I've been thinking about it a lot since, and it. It was that thing that T.S. T. Eliot wrote a very unpleasant book that's out of print called After Strange Gods in which he disembowels Lawrence. But also Blake, he accuses Blake of not having had a sufficiently classical education. And, you know, you admire his verse like you admire homemade furniture, which is just such a... <laughs> Me out. <laughs> exactly. Their relationship through this, the whole thing is such a push-me-pull-you sort of... I'd have to tell it a small, a very short little anecdote one of the first literary parties I ever went to at Jonathan Cape the novelist Lisa Santoban de Turan oh, arrived yes. with her then husband George Macbeth who I heard George Macbeth and I thought that's the bastard that was really mean to Elizabeth Smart <laughs> <laughs> until I it's only halfway through the evening that I realized no 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 wrong poet wrong George oh. it was George Barker not George Macbeth so you, you were throwing him evil so <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was literally like mm. hey so Jonathan have you ever read by Grand Central Station? I have sat not. Down and wet? I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Well, I'm impressed that you got to the end of it, Andy, as you always do. One of the rules, one of the backlisted rules. How can we, with a clear conscience, presume to pass judgment on these things if we don't even do them the well, justice I, of finishing them? I, I mean, it's, I, I, it's not I, difficult. Do you remember the massive problems we had trying to read Joseph Heller's Something Happened. We were weeping. <laughs> he was, what was his name, Bob Slocum, was such yeah, an unpleasant <laughs> consciousness to be inside. But if you don't read that book to the end, literally, you miss the thing that happens. What yeah. happens, happens <laughs> yeah, really, 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 true. right at the end of the book. Something does happen, and it does change the way you think about the book. Oh. Now it's commercials. <laughs> anyway, 
Chatwin. We should start right, on Chatwin. Right, come on. Utz by Bruce Chatwin. Bruce Chatwin was so famous and the facts of his life were at one point so well known, but I think perhaps they aren't now. So we will talk a bit about Chatwin himself as we go along. But Utz was Chatwin's final novel, as John says. So I woke up on Christmas morning. <laughs> I was really excited. I was thinking, I wonder what Father Christmas has brought me. And then my phone buzzed and it was a DM from Jonathan saying, "I'm where were you? I was at home in Sunderland, doesn't my mum say? It's like at 7.30 on Christmas morning saying, can I come on to Batlisted to talk about Oots by Bruce Chatwin? <laughs> yeah, and I, I, said, I, I never met you or spoken to you before. No, <laughs> we never met or spoken before. I so admired the, no pun intended, chutzpah of that, <laughs> of that gesture. Can I, can I just explain chutzpah. why that happened? Yeah. Right, so my mum's my not very well. She's, she's in her home. I was up at my mum's house. Christmas Day was going to be me getting a taxi to the home running back after the 30 minutes or 40 minutes or however long I could bear being in the home. And I wasn't sleeping particularly well. I'd woken up at four in the morning. I'd done some of the work I needed to do. And I had to do a, my tactics review of the year for The Guardian, which is something I've been desperately putting off. <laughs> and I had a list of things that, you know, things to do with the bank and, you know, a list of things I had to do. And one of the things in the sort of nice column was maybe push myself forward and see if I could talk about it. <laughs> And so I'd been up from four. It didn't really seem that early when I, I, think, it, I think it was actually 7.55 when I DM'd it. I just thought it was a magnificent gesture and a moment to choose. And I think I came back to you very quickly and went, oh, yes, you did. this would be great. Within like five minutes. Yeah. I, there you go, you see. I mean, it was literally That's, the best thing that happened that Christmas day. Listeners, don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the way to get on it. But then what happened, the other thing, amazing thing that happened is we, well, I, after Rachel had come on and uh, been here for the rainbow, by D.H. Lawrence John. You, I, ju- you... I just, I said to her, what, you know, we'd enjoyed, we'd re- because we both, I think as often with, with, with Backlisted, you feel you've done a reasonable job, but there's so much that you didn't get to say. And I, and I said, what would you pick? I mean, you know, given that the rainbow sort of was, we, it was Catherine's choice and it was something mm-hmm. that I'd wanted to do because I hadn't reread it and wanted to reread it. And it, it was also, you know, the whole baiting Andy, knowing that he hated, <laughs> he loathed, he loathed. Lawrence and I wanted to see if we could turn him even slightly which we did a bit so I said what would you choose if you had a blank slate and, and quick as a she said Oots by Bruce Chapman and I said that's incredible really what I said and it made me think because what I would say about Oots is I read it as in the height of my Chatwin mania I mean yeah. I was I there was no writer I loved more in 1988 than Bruce Chatwin I was obsessed with him whole generation i think of male not just male but a lot of younger right people who were aspiring to write chatwin was in an, this impossible glamorous brilliant uh, interesting figure and and Utz came out and i can remember being a tiny bit disappointed by it at the time it came out because i was sort of reeling from all the intellectual uh, kind of stimulation of the song lines and mm. and then this perfectly formed fable arrives it's too weird a coincidence to have two and, people coming up. And Rachel, you were working at Jonathan Cape when Utz was yeah, published, I was there, right? Yeah, I was there when, when the Songlines was published as well. So Bruce used to come into the office. It was always a moment of giggly excitement if <laughs> Bruce came to the office. I want to ask Rachel about Bruce a bit more in a minute, but Jonathan, when did you first read Utz? The honest truth is I can't remember, but I will tell you a long and rambling Chatwinian tale <laughs> Excellent. to try and Do explain it. that. So the first chapman I read was in 2007, and I was in Argentina. I was researching Inverting Pyramid, and so I read In Patagonia. And I wouldn't say I was disappointed in it, but it wasn't really what I was looking for. What I wanted was something that was going to give me <laughs> cheap and easy insights into the Argentinian soul. And you know, I wasn't even in Patagonia. I was in Buenos Aires. So yeah, sort of put it to one side. But while I was in Argentina, uh, I um, met a woman, uh, we ended up being together for three and a half years. In Christmas 2009, she came over to Sunderland for, for Christmas, uh, which wraps things together nicely, Sunderland Christmas. <laughs> it does. And one of the things we did, we went up to, to Craston, on the Northumberland coast, to wow. eat the kippers, walked along the cliff to Dunstanborough, and it was really cold. So I thought, like, where can I go that's warm and not too far away? So we went to Annick on the way back to uh, Barter Books, the enormous Brilliant. second-hand bookshop in the old station. My favourite bookshop in the, in the universe. Fantastic place. Yeah. 
And I was about to go to Angola to cover the African Cup of Nations. It's a football tournament. Don't. don't, <laughs> I don't I'm, just, I'm practically <laughs> drooling with uh, <laughs> with incomprehension. Um, and I'd I picked up a copy of Another Day of Life, the Kapuscinski book about Angola, and I happened to see in Barter Books the biography of Kapuscinski. I thought, oh, I'll get that. It's nice and cheap. And then next to it was a biography of of Chapman, the Nicholas Shakespeare, which is a brilliant biography, I think. Um, and it, it picked that up as well. Went off to Angola. Been a terrorist attack on the Togo team. I was the only British print journalist out there. I was completely at my depth dealing with stuff that wasn't men kicking a ball around, but actually people shooting each other. Luanda was was hideous. I, I spent three days at the airport trying to get up to Cabinda where the terrorist attack had happened. But it's you know the domestic terminal in Luanda is pretty basic. Yeah. So it's a very Chatwinian scene of packing cases yeah, yeah. and chickens pecking about the floor. Not that I knew it was Chatwinian at this stage. I then went, uh, ended up not being able to get to Cabinda, so I went down the coast to Benguela, which is seven hours south of the land. It's lovely, yeah, really nice town, lots of old Portuguese colonial architecture. And I had a, was in a lovely guest house there, but the electricity and the Wi-Fi kept going off. So every time I was unable to work, I'd go out into the courtyard, and there was two mango trees, and sit under the mango trees for shade. And there was a Swiss journalist there, and I wouldn't mention this if it isn't the kind of detail chat one would ram down your throat. <laughs> oh, indeed. So there's a, this, this um, the Swiss journalist there who I'd met in Ghana two years earlier, and he was a really he was a really funny bloke, but a very bitter, cynical man. And he his previous job before becoming a football journalist, he'd been a clown in a circus, and he'd um, his his circus. <laughs> this is very chatty. <laughs> this is very good. Go on. His circus had, had uh, toured West Africa. And one night, while they were performing in Nigeria, he'd seen a beautiful woman in the front row in the audience, and he'd contrived a way to go over and get her number, and they ended up getting married. And as after he married her, he quit clowning and became a football journalist. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> but when, when, he, when he wasn't about, I would read. And so I found myself, having gone through Another Day of Life and the Kapuscinski biography, which had led me to you know, the questions we were talking about earlier about, you know, when you are writing that sort of reportage, to what extent is your duty to factual truth or to expressing an emotional truth? Mm. And then I, I read the, the Chapman biography in perhaps most serendipitous circumstances you could conceivably do yeah. so. I was reading it in the absence of a, of a former Swiss clown sitting under a mango tree in a courtyard in Angola. <laughs> and there was this whole series of kind of little connections. I mean, he, he talks when he was researching Viceroy of Weida, he was in Brazil and he went to see the sociologist Gilberto Freire. Yeah. And I'd, I'd read a lot of Freire when I was doing yeah, the yeah, Pyramid. Yeah. So there's a whole series of, of, of little kind of connections. Um, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I could want to read more of this guy. This sounds, this sounds like the kind of person I want to be. I don't think I really do. But it, it, initially it's, it seemed and, that way. And, and so yet. through 2010, yeah. I think I'd already read his last book, which is The Collection of Journalism. I then read the other four in order. And I can't say... I liked them much, huh. but there was enough to keep me reading until I got to Uts, which I thought was just absolutely sensational. Rachel, I'm going to ask you about Chatwin. John is a few, not many listeners, just a few years older than me, but I think one of the significant differences in our ages is that he had the 80s Chatwin mania. I reacted against the 80s Chatwin mania. Yeah. that I was sufficiently young that I looked at it and thought, this is what all these people like. I don't want anything to do with it. And I had reacted. I mean, we know that Chatwin was a scrupulous curator of his own myth, especially around his books. And I, 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 I say that because that's a big part of his publishing. You know, it's photographs taken by Lord Snowden. So I come into reading Chatwin for this podcast I read the Viceroy of Ouida, I don't really like it. I read the song lines, that, although the weirdest thing happened. Yes, uh, it's very, uh, very But anyway, we, uh, we, we might talk about it later. I read the song lines, I found that very frustrating, but I had little flashes of, of, of enjoyment while simultaneously thinking this was a number one bestseller for six weeks. I, how, it's surely one of the strangest books ever to have done that. Anyway, then I get to Utz absolutely love Utz. I read it and then I read it again because I couldn't believe how 
good it was and the things that were good about it were things that he had not bothered to do in the previous books that I'd read. That the discipline, the structural discipline of it, apart from anything else, and the way the prose is shaped is totally different to what he does in the songlines. So suddenly the whole the whole subject of Chatwin and my respect for him as a writer, as a writer, as a persona we might come back to, but as a writer went up stratospherically. And this book, Utz, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1988, wasn't it? What was so you were you didn't work on this book, Rach, did you? No, I didn't do the publicity. That was done by my my friend and colleague Polly Sampson. By the time this was published, he wasn't well. He was always a very glamorous presence, a person that everybody wanted to see. It was exciting when he came into the office. A story which I is stuck in my memory, and I'm not even sure if I've imagined this or whether this actually happened because. Having, I was absolutely convinced that this was true. I remember Bruce coming into the office with a little package and saying, guess what I've got in here? And we were like, what? well, what have you got, Bruce? And he said, it's a signed copy, signed first edition of Madame Bovary. He was saying, oh. Rachel, get on the phone, ring Julian now, tell him that I've got this. <laughs> Which is very, very Bruce. Oh, that's funny. What happens with Chatwin is he is, as you say, he is literary hot stuff, gold, everybody. He reinvents travel writing within Patagonia and travel in the 80s. Travel was massive. Yeah. But Chatwin writes in Patagonia and it's a completely unclassifiable book that is not like anything else that's going on. It's, you know, you've got Theroux, you had at the same time Paddy Lee Fermore writing, but Chatwin writes this book of fragments. It's immediately gets mythologized did he you know how the hell did he meet all these people there's a there's a i mean a famous bit which is you know used against chatwin i have sung heart the herald angels sing in welch i've dined with a man who knew butch cassidy i have discussed the poetics of mandelstam with an ukrainian doctor missing both legs and on it goes the book was the book was kind of it was either tremendously pretentious or tremendously brilliant or perhaps both and that so he writes that, and then he writes Viceroy of Weeder, which is, is is short but gets amazing reviews. Well, we've got a clip here of Chatwin, which seems which seems appropriate. Well, one of the things I like about Bruce Chatwin is he's very much one of those people who appears to have a strong personal moral code, but never lets you know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Right, and one of the things that he he didn't like being called a travel writer. No, he hated. Oh, right, no, he hated no, it. No, right. he hated Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So here is Chatwin talking about travel writing. The great point about travel is that you are outside the systems of class and caste and everyone will talk, basically because you're defenceless when you're travelling. And that's the way you find stories. And if you're interested in stories, I'm much more interested in stories and storytelling than I am in travelling. But stories come to you more easily when you are travelling. They do, they happen. A story will suddenly develop in front of your eyes and then you pursue it. I think that, for me, is the key to understanding Chatwin in terms of his oft-remarked upon, you know, relationship to truth. He, he famously has this jovial argument with Paul Theroux yeah. where Paul Theroux says to him, well, you should come clean. And Chatwin says, I don't believe in coming clean. And that, that it's the story that matters, you know, as long as the story is true enough. What, Jonathan putting you on the spot, yeah. is the story of Utz. What's the story of it um, in terms of the basic plot? Yeah. Utz is a collector of porcelain in, in Prague. He's protected this incredible collection of, of, of specifically Meissen porcelain uh, through the war. This, this is one of the, the things I think that is brilliant about the book, that you're never quite certain how much you should believe the narrator. There's a whole bit about yeah. the moustache. As, as unreliable he, narrators go, this is one of the greats. Because yeah. it's not flagged up at all. No. The, the, the moustache is, is the one little nudge. <laughs> the, 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 he's, you know, he's, he talks about his moustache. and he, did, did he have a moustache? And then by the end, he definitely has a moustache. Mm. But there's bits in the middle where you're not sure if he has a moustache. So the moustache <laughs> is a little, little signal of, don't necessarily believe all of this. So there's a line about him saving Jews during the war by essentially doing deals with, with his porcelain. Then there's another line where he says, you know, wars and revolutions, they're, they're great for collectors. It gives you so many opportunities. So there's a whole series of little uh, inconsistencies like that. But anyway, he, you know, he has, Utz has this, this collection of, of porcelain and it is the thing he cares about more than anything else. He has the chance to escape Czechoslovakia 
the, you know, the, the very repressive communist Czechoslovakia. Every year he goes on holiday to Vichy. Every year he thinks about staying in France. And every year he ends up going mm. back to mm. his collection, which I think from Chapman's point of view, Chapman's all his theories about how the nomadic condition is, is the natural condition of humanity. This is pretty core to him that, that possessions actually end up imprisoning you. And yet they're also yeah. a form of escape from the communist state. Rach, you've got a first edition of Boots right there. What is the jacket blurb there? It says, Harbouring his private collection of mice and porcelains, Caspar Utz found a refuge from the horrors of the 20th century. Compared with the exquisite reality of his figurines, rescued and safe in the illusionist city of Prague, the Gestapo and the secret police were to Utz as creatures of tinsel. It was the colourful harlequin, the trickster, with whom nondescript Utz most identified. Utz, too, was adept at wriggling into positions of advantage, at outwitting authorities, and the love of his own Columbine was nearer at hand than he knew. Being one-quarter Jewish, he nursed a qualm that art collecting was a kind of idolatry, a blasphemy, and that somehow this very danger was what made Jews so good at it. From his flat and sanctuary of old European images, Utz could see the tomb of Rabbi Loewe, create legendary creator of the golem, standing as mute, warning to him. By modelling and remodelling the figure of Utz, as each new detail about his life is unearthed, Bruce Chapman offers an insight into the fictional process itself. The artistry, mm. as always, is made to look simple, yet Chatwin's work stands out among contemporary writing as something valuable and rare. Who wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Do you know who wrote it? Yes, I do know. Should we, uh, do we allow to say? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a copywriter, Maggie Traugott. But really, who wrote it? was Bruce Chatwin. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a famous note. I think you've, you've got it as well. He, yeah, he was he was furious with the initial blurb. And this this was a letter and, he wrote and to... And Maggie Chagrin was sort of slightly hero-worship Bruce. Oh, yeah, she loved him. Yeah. She, she was a wonderful woman. This, we're, we're talking about the days in publishing where there was somebody whose job it was to write blurbs. I mean, we don't have that sort of luxury anymore. Her <laughs> job was to... She was a reader and blurb writer, copywriter. Yeah. Which that's what she, that was her Susanna job. Susanna Clapp, who was, who was Chatwin's editor and edited it, remarks sort of somewhat acidly that, that only women did those jobs because they were, they were the only ones who could afford with the ludicrously, ridiculously low pay that they came with. So, yeah, this is, this is from a letter after he's, he's got the blurb. And, you know, he's, he's clearly furious about it. He says, there's no idea of the illusionist city of Prague. There's no idea of the private world of Utz's little figures Figures or figurines, I can't remember my writing anyway. Figures or figurines is a strategy for blocking out the horrors of the 20th century, that the porcelains were real, the horrors so much flim-flam. No indication of a technique which allows the reader an insight into the fictional process and how a storyteller sets about it. One of the principal themes of the book is that old Europe survives. Marta, who's Utzer's maid, who he ends up marrying, if we can give that spoiler. <laughs> well, I, yeah. <laughs> Marta epitomises the fact that the techniques of political indoctrination fail and are bound to fail. Uh, no idea that Utz identifies himself as Harlequin, the trickster, and runs his own private commedia, outwitting everyone until finally he finds his Colum Columbina. No idea of a Jewish element, Utz is a quarter Jewish, of a somewhat subversive notion that the collecting of images, i.e. art collecting, is inimical to Jehovah, which is why Jews have always been so good at it. Art collecting equals idol worship equals blasphemy against the created world of God. Well, as Eric Morecambe once said, he won't sell many ice creams going at that speed. <laughs> now, when this book was shortlisted for the Booker Prize uh, in 1988, Private Eye did what it always does, which is oh, it, it I know, wrote I love a, its own blurb, <laughs> which I'm now going to read out. Because you've, you've heard Jonathan's excellent description, Rachel's read you the blurb. This is what Private Eye said. I think this still stands up. The novel Tootsie Fruitsie by Bruce Hatpin. <laughs> Wry, evocative, sensitive account of a Viennese ice cream collector who fills his cavernous flat in Marxist Prague with hundreds of different flavoured ice creams. <laughs> One day he wakes up and finds that they have all melted. As the Daily Telegraph commented, Tootsie Fruitsie is a wry, evocative novella in which ice cream collecting is used as a paradigm for man's insatiable urge to externalise the transient. <laughs> Chequin is, of course, best known for his award-winning cult novel, Tramlines, 
which shows how the ancient Incas invented trams. An insatiable nomad, he lives in Notting Hill like everybody else. <laughs> I mean, I think that's still pretty good, whoever, whoever wrote that 30 years ago. That's pretty funny. But the interesting thing to remind listeners who haven't read this book is that it is 150 pages long of big print. Yeah. It contains all the things that are on that blurb and all the things that Chatwin said were missing from the blurb. It's so full of ideas and resonances and references. He called it a fairy tale um, with some savage digs at the art business. It does have that sort of fabulous sort of structure, doesn't it? You meet him first in the in the 60s. He's researching Rudolf, the great porcelain collector, Rudolf II. This is all based on truth. There was, there was a collector that um, whose name forgets me, Just, I think, that mm-hmm. he was... He goes back after Utz's death. The book starts with Utz's funeral. So it's 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 kind of has this Russian doll structure. Each bit of the narrative, each time you go back to the narrative, new details are added. And through the narrative, Utz completely transforms from a rather pasty-faced, uh, mean-spirited collector into uh, variously a, a great lover and then a, a kind of a, a romantic, a married man. I mean, it's it's it's... I have to say, having gone back to this, and I've looked at, I haven't reread in, in its entirety the songlines and the other book that I loved, which is on the Black Hill. I kind of feel this might be his best book. What was it that made you love it? What was, what was it that made you fall in love with it, Jonathan? Because I, I know very clearly what made me fall in love with it. I just want to hear from you. What... Well, maybe it's easy to say why it resonated in a way his other work didn't, particularly, or his other yeah. fictional work. And I guess there's a question of what of his other work is fictional. Um, <laughs> but songlines I had, a, I had a huge problem with and it is this issue of truth and maybe this is because I'm coming out from a journalistic background that I just I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cheap get out to have a character called Bruce Chatwin who you game subsequently claim is not you and this book which has all the hallmarks of a, of a travel book of a book of ideas to exonerate yourself from a commitment to truth by saying no it's a novel not really sure that's good enough. They asked Tom Mash to the publisher of Cape, <laughs> is the song lines a novel? Because Bruce, ever the, it strikes me, they, Chatwin, ever he the... He got shortlisted for the Thomas Cook Travel Award and he, uh, he, he said, we must withdraw. And uh, Mash just said, I, I think it is a novel uh, because Bruce persuaded me. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, Bruce had persuaded me it was a travel book, I'd be telling you it was a travel <laughs> book. <laughs> We've mentioned Susanna Clapp earlier. Yeah. Uh, Susanna... Uh, Clapp edited Utz and edited several books. Of Patag- in Patagonia, she edited all of them. I mean, all, no, and not all of them. Not all of she, them. She did it in Patagonia. Yeah. And Chatwin had worked for Sotheby's in the 1960s. And this is Susanna Clapp talking about what Sotheby's gave him as a writer. He was extraordinarily wonderful looking, blonde hair, blue eyes, piercing blue eyes, very animated manner. His talk was very fluent and he was one of those rare writers who can talk as expressively as they wrote and indeed in the same way. And part of his charm was the way in which he rehearsed his stories, continually honing down and always able to put a verb in the right place to colour his talk so expressively. All these things drew people to him. I mean, it's not simply that his books are full of visual description, um, although that is a large part of it. And the, his first book in Patagonia um, is absolutely packed full of very, very dis- precise adjectives. I mean, it is painterly in that sense. I mean, I once counted the number of descriptive colour adjectives on a page and they were absolutely enormous. It goes beyond that, I think. It, it He was inquisitive visually in a way that very few people are. He was always noticing the bizarre, the odd, the anomalous. Um, it went absolutely throughout his writing. And I think that Sotheby's was very important in teaching him well, in, in developing what was already there, in developing a very precise way of looking at things, at examining things. Chatwin was famous for having the eye, right? He was very good yeah. when he worked for Sotheby's at spotting the value of things, what was a fake, what wasn't a fake. And another great uh, writer and traveller is the poet Rambo, right? So he's a very big reader of Rambo and Rambo's famous dictum that I, the word I, in writing, I is another. I is another, yeah. You know, and it seems to me Chatwin actually is one of the writers who really uh, put, takes that 
to its logical and then perhaps unacceptable extreme. I, I, Bruce Chatwin, is another. Yes, but that's okay because because what's he doing? He's not a journalist. He is a storyteller. That's what he would say, I think. What matters is the story. Yeah, and yet if the form in which you are writing or the form which you appear to be writing is one essentially based on facts, I'm not sure that's enough. And that's why Utz, I think, appealed because... That, that question's taken out of the equation. Okay, it's based on people who existed 20, 25 years earlier, um, but it's not so obviously, I know he changes the names in, in songlines, but it's not as obviously based on contemporary people. And then, you know, to, to, to fully, I, mean, I sort of, I answered the question, why did I fall for it? By slagging off a previous book. <laughs> so the whole question was, was taken away. But also, it, it's, the, it's the combination of precision and concision. And mm. it's, so many ideas that are there that are just sort of glided over all that stuff on the blurb we talked about a whole series of you know of the beginnings of themes we've barely mentioned rabbi lerf and the idea yeah. of porcelain as a golem and and mm. that's obviously you know when he's talking about prague has been this mysterious city yeah. that's very key it's just also very, porcelain as the porcelain as the product of the actual scientific process of alchemy. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting. Yeah, Bircher was was literally locked in a basement by uh, uh, Adolphus the Strong until he solved the problems of alchemy, and he came up with porcelain instead, which is pretty good. Right, Rachel, could you read us a, a a section? Well, there's there's several bits that I love, but what I love about that that the whole golem thing is that it it completely it runs throughout the whole book. I remember this really kind of. All golem legends derived from an ancient Jewish belief that any righteous man could create the world by repeating in an order prescribed by the Kabbalah the letters of the secret name of God. Golem meant unformed or uncreated in Hebrew. Father Adam himself had been golem, an inert mass of clay so vast as to cover the ends of the earth, that is, until Yahweh shrank him to human scale and breathed into him, into his mouth, the power of speech. And that, that's mm. when a sudden, whoa. Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, you're, you're reading something. Because the other thing that made me fall in love with it, okay, this is the very opening of the novel. An hour before dawn on March the 7th, 1974, Caspar Joachim Utz died of a second and long expected stroke in his apartment at number five, Shirokfer Street, overlooking the old Jewish cemetery in Prague. Three days later, at 7.45am, mm. his friend, Dr. Vaclav Orlik, was standing outside the church of St. Sigismund, awaiting the arrival of the Hertz and clutching seven of the ten pink carnations he had hoped yes, to afford yes, at the Yes, 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 that's right. Yes, it's seven like, of the ten Oh, pink. my God. Yeah, yeah. I can quote that from when I first read it. I, that stuck well, in my mind. Also, that is very similar in the way it uses specifics of time and place with then the, the smallest incidental detail. That is remarkably similar to the opening of The Beginning of Spring by Penelope Fitzgerald, yeah. also shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1988. Well, it was an absurd shortlist that year, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, we, I want to do a little exercise now where, Alana, you can join us in this uh, because we're going for a clean sweep. I'm going to read out the six shortlisted novels of the 1988 Booker Prize and I'm going to see if we as a group have read all of them. I think there's a good chance that we have, right? So, Utz. Yes. Yes. The Beginning of Spring by Penelope Fitzgerald. Not yet. I have, so I've got yeah. it covered. Okay. The Winner, Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey. Yes. Oh, you have, Alana. Oh, great. Okay, so that's, that's a strong showing. Nice Work by David Lodge. Yes. 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 The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that just leaves... Whoa. Marina Warner's The Lost Father. No. No. No, I haven't read that either. Hope she's not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she might be because she figured in the the, the great interview with Rebecca West last week, it's a hell of a shortlist. I think that is a hell of a shortlist. Do you know who the jury was that year? Rose Tremaine, Blake Morrison, Philip French, Sebastian Fawkes, Chairman Michael Foote. Wow. I mean, wow. Well, Michael, <laughs> Michael, Michael Foot. Yes, Gosh, Michael Foot. Michael Foot yeah, yeah. read Utz yeah. <laughs> and found it pleasing. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> Chapman famously didn't go to the dinner because he'd kind of... Did he not? Yeah, he, they kind was he of, too ill? He was too, well, he was too ill. He wanted to go, but then he was sort of told it, it was more or less not going his way. He was really ill by that stage. Uh, it's... What's... The little bit you read about the golem, it's it, what's satisfying about this and why I, I liked, I mean, I'm, you know, I, as I say, I'm speaking a little bit as a fanboy because the time, the song lines just seem to me to be so interesting. It's a book about nomadism. The, the core of Chatwin's life is the tension between wanting to travel and wanting to stay at home. Elizabeth, his wife, famously stays at home and, and you know, has sheep and and, and dogs and, and lives a, a rural life. Well, she travels quite a bit, though, doesn't yeah, she? She takes trips to India. Yeah. And... But she's kind of, she's, she's. I mean, there is a sort of martyr, the martyr, the character in the book, who's who's kind of of the, an earth sprite is what he talks about, and Elizabeth. So there's the, all that tension, and the, and, the, and the song lines is a kind of, on one level, an ungenerous level, an undigested attempt to write the great book about where human beings came from, the battle with the beast, you know, the the the, the hunter-gatherers, much like we were talking last week, last podcast about Doggerland, you know. Mm. He, he's trying to ask big questions. It's it's Bits of it are travelogue, bits of it are his notebooks. And at the time, it just seemed to me like an incredibly, I mean, very brave, very unoriginal and and kind of brilliant original yeah not unoriginal uh, but very original very <laughs> yeah, okay, very yeah. original and 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 it got amazing i remember it got an amazing review by john bailey in the in calling it a masterpiece in the lrb and it got it got the kind of coverage that got it to number one still as you say a very re- remarkable feat for a book of that's so odd anyway the point is that that what he does in Utz is he takes all those undigested ideas and puts them into characters, yes. puts them into narrative, yeah. puts them into a, a story. Is that what is that what you felt? Yeah, I, I think it's just... A, having it's read much, all the others and then... It's a much lighter, it's a much more readable book and for all the kind yeah. of the depth of the ideas. It, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, the, the, the opening, which you, you read, it goes on into the, the whole joke about the janitor playing the organ. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny in a way. I don't think any of his other. I mean, maybe some of the journalism is quite funny. I love this bit that when they, they're sitting in a they're sitting in a in a restaurant having lunch, and the, the the menu is badly translated. So carp comes out as crap, which is you know leads to much mirth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actual but, jokes but in chat with actual jokes <laughs> in chat with. There's obviously there's a there's a photograph hanging on the wall, a photo of Comrade Novotny. How a man with so disagreeable a mouth would consent to being photographed at all, which is very <laughs> that's I, very chat. I think the thing I found overwhelmingly affecting about Utz is it seemed to me that it it's an unverifiable love story and it's not the love story that's interesting it's the unverifiable part of it and that seemed to me a really profound comment on writing how do we account for things which we can't account for. What does fiction do to fill in the gaps where we can't know the gaps? Yeah. And one of the things that he does in Utz, which is totally fascinating to me, is whoever the narrator is of Utz gradually lets go of the need to verify the story. That, for me, on the second reading, is one of the brilliances of it. Yeah. And by the that, end, has completely yes. just snapped the rope and, saying, and off it goes. saying, I presented you at the start of this book with facts and I end it wholly in the realm of fiction. And it's up to you to find where the wardrobe door is in this novel. Where do I pass from fact to myth? And I, I, I is another. It's Chatwin as well. It's the idea of yeah. Chatwin passing from real life to created life even in his own lifetime he'd done it this character of bruce chatwin the narrator of the song lines the novel the song lines not the travel book the song lines this character of bruce chatwin i would say jonathan i find it's totally fascinating on the one hand yes you could see that as a get out right it's not me on the other hand you could see it as something totally freeing to leap across barriers and make connections and pull in the things that he does in Utz, if all he was interested in was a dogged presentation of the facts, he wouldn't be able to present to you that list of all the things that got left out of the blurb. I agree with you. 
for me, of the books of his that I've read as a novel, this is the one that really embraces fiction in a way that the Viceroy of Weeder and the Songlines don't. Now, I haven't read On the Black Hill. I know yeah. you're a big fan, aren't you? I, I am, yeah. I mean, I am, and oddly enough, it's the, one of the very few books I gave to my son and grandfather who didn't, he didn't read a lot of fiction, but I knew he would love that book. And he indeed, he, he read it very, very carefully from beginning to end and said it was the, the, the best novel he'd ever read, which is why I have perhaps an over-sentimental attachment to it. But going back to it, it still stands up. What I, I think it's really important to say that Chatwin had this amazing reputation almost as soon as he's dead, a very bizarre kind of Greek Orthodox ceremony. Famously, that was the, the day that the fatwa was announced. Mm-hmm. It was a, no readings. It was just a lot, of, a lot of Orthodox monks chanting. The only word that anybody understood at any point in the service was the word Bruce. Um, very Chatwin. <laughs> anyway, almost immediately, his critical reputation starts to become sort of reassessed. You know, people, yeah. Alan Bennett. As recently as 2010, Blake Morrison's able to start a a review of the letters with does anyone read Bruce Chatwin these days and there has been a kind of a, I think there's been a massive swing in the opposite direction which interests me and he, he hated literary London and he hated the whole yeah, but he, he was did. he was also you know he was called Lord Chatwin at school we've heard his you know he was product of Marlborough I'm fascinated by that the the person who he most resembles in his in his writing that I can think of is is Zobart. Zabolt's very last essay, he talks about Chatwin and says Chatwin himself ultimately remains an enigma, one and never knows how to classify his books, and then gives a wonderful account of what those books are, you know, anthropological and mythological studies and the tradition of Livy Strauss, uh, adventure stories, looking back to our early childhood reading, collections of facts, dream books, regional novels, examples of lush exoticism, puritanical penance, sweeping Baroque visions, self-denial and personal confession. They're all these things together. Do you sort of feel that Zabalt is there for the long haul? Not sure whether Chatwin is anymore. I used to, he, it would have been an, a ridiculous thing to say in 1988-89 that Chatwin wouldn't last. But I wonder... He... I, I read... A bit, you, you asked me, what did I read this week? And we were talking about Elizabeth Smart. Well, I, one of the books I actually read this week, I'd be fascinated to know if anyone here has read it, is V.S. Naipaul's The Enigma of Arrival. Years ago. Right. Yeah. Now, that is a fascinating book to compare to both Sabelt and Chatwin. Mm. Mm. You know, it presents itself as a novel. I would be astonished yeah. if there's anything fictional in it, apart from a few names changed. And and it is a meditation on, guess what, history, truth, landscape, from a writer you would not necessarily expect to approach those subjects. I found it totally hypnotic, absolutely hypnotic book, The Enigma of Arrival. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would like to say thank you to uh, Jonathan for suggesting we do Chatwin on Christmas morning. Thank you very much. (laughs) It did turn out to be a good Christmas present. And Rachel for coming back so soon. I found this one of the most liberating backlisteds that we've ever done because it was one of those times that what I thought I knew about an author was only... <laughs> I was half right, but the, the half in which I was wrong was the liberating half. Yeah. And to have the pleasure of discovering a writer, not all of whose work I particularly like, but one of whose books... I felt, wow, I haven't and, read anything with that I've had such a strong intellectual and emotional reaction to for a long time. I'm fascinated to hear you say, because that's almost exactly my feeling. I, mean, I, I went back to reading Patagonia when I was in Patagonia. Mm. It was, again, this, this great serendipitous moment that uh, I'd, I'd been out on a boat to look at the penguin colony and we were getting tea and cake having got off the boat. And I suddenly realised this was Halberton, the farm that he talks about and in Patagonia. This sort of, this weird sense of, hang on, this is why is this familiar? This, oh, it's. I've been here before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And which it tells you how, you how good the descriptive work is. That, yeah. you know, it, it felt. It's as a if fabulous book. Um, it, uh, it was Utz who first convinced me that history is always our guide for the future, and always full of capricious surprises. <laughs> the future itself is a dead land yes. because it does not yet exist. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, yes. brilliant, brilliant. Okay, uh, well, it's time for this band of nomads to return to <laughs> camp. Huge thanks to Jonathan and Rachel, to Alana Chance, our cool and collective guest producer, and to Unbound, the underwriter for all our literary divagations. You can download all 86 of our shows, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading, and even buy tasteful merchandise. 
by visiting our website at batlisted.fm and you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook and via Boundless. Uh, before you do that, and assuming this podcast has met with your exacting standards, why not leave us a, a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts joy? Farewell, fair forward, fellow travellers. Yay! Yeah, come on. Really, really good, guys. That was brilliant, Joe. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.